are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Well, good afternoon, everybody. My name is David Guzik, and I'm so pleased that you could join me today for our Thursday afternoon question and answer time. I... uh, Got, I guess, several things to say at the very beginning. First of all, I want to thank my friend Miles De Benedictus for sitting in for me last week. Last week, I was with my wife, uh, Ingalil, in Honduras on the island of Roatan. She had done a wonderful dental mission there. This is a great ministry that my wife has. We've talked about it a few times here on the Thursday afternoon program. And if you go to the website, EnduringWord.com, you can click on a little link we have in the sidebar. It'll tell you a little bit more about that. But my wife has a wonderful ministry providing dental missions all around the world. And I joined her at the very end of her trip to preach at the church where they had the dental mission at, because they always do it in cooperation with a church or a ministry, wherever they go in the world. And then uh, we also had some time for fun. We did a little bit of scuba diving. That's something we've taken up just in the last few years. And we're certainly not expert divers or anything, but we enjoy getting out the couple times a year when we're able to. So thank you to Miles, to Benedictus for filling in for me last week. I'm back this week, and I don't know, I think I'm gonna be here next Thursday. I've got a lot of travel in the next several months, but whenever it's possible, I'll be here with you, and uh, sometimes I'll be doing it from location, from where I'm at, if that's possible as well, especially if I'm traveling to Europe. Our normal pattern for the uh, Thursday afternoon, at least it's afternoon here on the Pacific coast of the United States, Our normal pattern is I begin with a lead question, a lead question that comes in. Maybe it's left over from the previous week. Maybe it comes in by email. I think today's question came in by email. Maybe it comes in by social media or as a comment on a YouTube channel. And obviously, we can't get to every question that comes in, but uh, we pick questions that we think uh, will be relevant and helpful for our audience. And our audience includes our TWR360 audience. We want to give a grid Big greeting again to our TWR, that's Trans World Radio 360. Of course, that's the amazing ministry uh, which started out long ago with uh, being solely a ministry of shortwave radio and reaching the globe with the gospel uh, and good Bible teaching by shortwave radio. Now, in addition to that, they also have a great online presence That's TWR360, and that's a great site, especially for people who are working with other languages, because they reach a lot of different languages globally with TWR360. Okay, anyway, greetings to all of you. Let's get into our lead question today. It comes from Sue. And if I could summarize Sue's question, that's always what we try to do with the lead question, summarize it uh, into a sentence. Here's the summary I would give. She's asking, in heaven, will we pray for people? But I got to read to you Sue's email. It'll touch your heart. Ready for this? From Sue. My cancer has probably returned, and it's very likely I'll be going home soon with absolute delight and joy to be forever with my God, King, and Savior. My only hesitation is leaving my unsaved children behind. Can we continue to pray for them in heaven? Will we pray in heaven when we're with God? I think and believe from your teaching in God's word that it seems like we won't. 
very thankfully, be watching the world left behind. Jesus prays for us in heaven. We don't pray for those in heaven from, for those in heaven, excuse me, from heaven for those here on earth. Thanks. Well, Sue, thank you for your question. I want you to know that I'm sorry to hear about your cancer returning, but I'm glad to hear about the peace you have in the Lord and how you are really ready to meet the Lord. Sue, it's true, and I'm not trying to minimize what you're going through at all, but it's true that every person on this earth is appointed to die. Now, I do believe there will be a catching away of the church at the wonderful return of Jesus Christ. And uh, so there will be some who escape death because they're caught away. But leaving them aside, where every one of us are born to die. And you have a unique gift of knowing that your death will be likely in the coming weeks or months and preparing for it. You know, not everybody has that gift. There are many people who die unexpectedly, and I I suppose there's a way that people think, well, look, if I'm going to die, I don't want to know about it ahead of time. I want it to happen sudden, unexpectedly. But friends, we've lost the idea of being prepared to die. You know, it's been said that that's one of the chief jobs of a pastor, and I believe it. It's to prepare his people to die. Because it's something that we all face. And in our modern world, we, we sort of push it away from our consciousness, at least in the Western world. But we all have to face it. And, and so I want you to know, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray that God's hand is very close to you and finds a way to be near you and to bless you. And, and I pray that whatever time God gives you left remaining on this earth, that it's a blessed time with as little pain and discomfort as possible. But on to your question, Sue. Well, l- let me approach it kind of in the biggest way first. I'm going to sort of zoom out. Sue, yes, we will pray in heaven if we define prayer broadly. You see, we're, we're going to worship. We're going to talk with God. We're going to give thanks and praise. We're going to honor him. All of those are aspects of prayer. Let me read to you Revelation chapter 5, verse 8, which says this. Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. I want you to notice this. Here, it's the 24 elders that have these golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Uh, Incense in the scriptures is a picture of prayer. It's these representatives of the people of God. Uh, 24 elders, 12 from the Old Testament, 12 from the New Testament, representing the people of God in their entirety. We also see in Revelation chapter 8, verse 4, and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Again, this is the idea of prayer, incense. 
having to do with uh, the prayers of God's people. And it's speaking somewhat figuratively, but the idea is if we think of prayer as communion with God, then yes, we will pray in heaven. Now, if we think of prayer as petition or intercession, then it's a little bit hard to say. I will say this, that the martyred saints of Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, are in some way asking God for something, and that is petition. Let's take a look at that passage, Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. When he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now, implied in their statement is a request for God to do this. And that is a form of petitionary prayer. So there's something like petitionary prayer in heaven. I I don't know if we would say this exactly matches up with what we see on earth, but there's something like it. But this is what we don't know, Sue. We don't know if we will have any knowledge or how much knowledge we might have of what happens on earth when we are in heaven. The Bible just doesn't speak to this with great clarity. There's a couple of hints that I'll give you right now. Hints that... Um, we may be aware of some things that happen on earth. All things, I don't know, only God knows all things, but at least some things we may be aware of. And the first passage I'd point you to is Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verse 1, which says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. I I love this verse from Hebrews chapter 12. The idea is that there is this um, a race that we're running, and it's something like being in a stadium, and, and we're on the playing field. We believers, disciples of Jesus Christ, we're running our race, and surrounded us is a stadium full of onlookers, and by the way he describes them in verse 1, so great a cloud of witnesses Angels aren't normally spoken of that way. It, it kind of gives us the indication that it's, it's God's faithful people who have gone on before. I, I want to take pains to point out, Hebrews 12.1 doesn't specifically say it, but it paints a picture of God's faithful people of the past as being witnesses or spectators that are, in some sense, watching us and cheering us on. So that that's a possibility. Again, it's not clear, but it's suggestive. I'll give you one other sort of suggestive passage. It's in Luke chapter 9, verses 30 and 31, where uh, the disciples were witnessing, or at least a few of the disciples were there witnessing the uh, transfiguration of Jesus. That was when Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration. This is what it says in Luke chapter 9, And behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So apparently Moses and Elijah from the world beyond had some knowledge of what was happening and what would happen on the earth. 
I mean, you, you could say that the the work Jesus was about to accomplish at Jerusalem, his, his crucifixion and resurrection, that was front page news and having everybody, well, maybe so. So we don't have enough to give us like any kind of certainty or a clear picture, but there's at least some hints that people in heaven may know some of what ha- is happening on earth. Now, at the same time, and this is where it sort of gets a little complicated, we know that there is no sorrow or heartache in heaven. Don't ever forget Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There should be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There should be no more pain for the former things have passed away. What a beautiful promise that is about heaven, isn't it? And when they are in heaven, whatever God's people know of earth, whatever we might know of earth when we're in heaven will cause us no pain, no stress, no sorrow, no anxiety, no tears. Whatever we see of earth while we are in heaven, we will see it all considering God's good, perfect, just, loving plan of the ages. We will know in heaven that as Abraham said of the Lord in Genesis chapter 18, verse 25, that the judge of all the earth does right. We'll also know that God's ways are perfect, even when we don't understand them. Now, look, in heaven, we're going to understand a lot more than we understand now, but only God understands everything. We won't understand everything in heaven, but we'll understand a lot more than we know now. But this will still apply to us in heaven. Romans chapter 11, verses 33 and 34, where we read, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? There's always going to be things beyond our understanding, yet we'll know that God is perfect in all his ways and in all his judgments. So back to Sue's question, considering all of that, we aren't really presented with the picture in heaven of anybody in heaven praying for those on earth with the exception of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, as Sue mentioned in her email, Jesus Christ prays for his people. Now, it's true, of course, that we don't pray for the dead. I mean, we on earth, we do not pray for the dead. When we pass from this life to the next, our time of choosing is over. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 tells us that it is appointed for men to die once, but after this to face the judgment. Judgment comes after we die and and eternity is settled. So we don't pray for the dead, but neither do we ask the dead to pray for us. Jesus is the only intercessor or mediator in heaven that we have or need. Now, I want to take pains. People who think that believers should ask the dead to pray for them, those in heaven, they'd say, well, they're not dead. They're alive in heaven. And that's true. I'm just using dead here as a way for people who have gone from this world to the next. 
people who are dead as far as this world can. Of course, they're alive in the world beyond. They're alive in heaven. But we don't ask those in heaven to pray for us with the exception of Jesus. Jesus is the only intercessor or mediator in heaven that we have or need. Friends, if you can go straight to Jesus in heaven, you don't need anybody else in heaven to pray for you. Now, I know we ask people on earth to pray for us all the time, but that's different. Those people are on earth. We just need one to pray for us in heaven. We're told in the Bible that we shouldn't communicate with those in the world beyond other than God himself. So, Sue, you're right. There really is no indication that from heaven we can or will continue to pray for the salvation of those that we know and love on earth. But, Sue, I want to encourage you with something. And this is especially for anyone who is aware that their life doesn't have a whole lot of time left, that they're in their last season. However long that season may last, they're in their last season. God appoints our days. God gives us exactly the time we need. So you don't have to worry about not having enough time to pray for your children who don't know the Lord yet. God has given you on this earth the perfect amount of time for it. Now, it doesn't always seem like that to us, but it's true. God gives us enough time for everything we need to do before him. Now, how we use this time before God, that's another matter. We don't always use that time well, but God gives us the time we need for what he wants us to do. I want to close with just a couple psalms that I think kind of speak to this idea of the wisdom that we should have considering the days of our life. Psalm 39 verse 4 says this, Lord, make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days that I may know how frail I am. You know, I read those words and I I think of a young person and the last thing on your mind is the day you're going to die. And I understand that. That's just one of the characteristics of youth. But for every one of us, including you young people, there is wisdom in knowing your end, in knowing the measure of your days, in knowing how frail you are. And then finally, from Psalm 90, verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. You know, when the psalmist says there to number our days, uh, it's not like we know the number of those days. That's unknown to us. (laughs) But what we're called to do is remember that there is a number to our days. It's not unlimited. And we need to live right now with the wisdom of being about our Father's business because we have the time to do what the Lord has given us to do. Okay, let me go on to the next question here. Uh, Let me do a little bit of clicking here, excuse me. Going over to our moderator's work here from Adonis, who asks this. Why should the New Testament, including the writings of Paul, be considered 
scripture? Well, um, Adonis, that's a good question, and I can give you an answer in a few ways. First of all, Jesus told his disciples that the Holy Spirit would speak to them, reminding them of his words and of his actions, and that they should expect this revelation from the Holy Spirit. Jesus told his disciples that uh, in his upper room discourse, John chapters uh, 14, 15, and 16. Again, I I can't remember the exact chapter and verse. It's funny. I'm going to preach this Saturday at a pastor's conference at Calvary Chapel Downey uh, for the Calvary Chapel Association, uh, just a group of pastors and leaders in the Los Angeles area. I'm going to preach there this Saturday. You're certainly welcome to come. Anybody who's in the area, you can register online. Uh, But um, I'm going to preach a message on continuing in the Apostles' Doctrine. And I was just kind of trying to think, well, where did they get this doctrine? And one of the places that they got this doctrine was Jesus told them that the Holy Spirit would reveal these things to them. That's number one. And and what the Holy Spirit revealed to the apostles is uh, the New Testament, that, that which is given to us. The other thing we should do is remember Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, which says this, that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. Now, you say, well, what does that have to do with Scripture? Friends, this is the inspired record. I'm talking about the New Testament. The Greek Scriptures, the New Testament, is for us the inspired record of that foundation in the apostles and prophets that Jesus Christ uh, promised and and established in the church. That's the second reason. There's a third reason. Uh, Paul consciously wrote his letters for a wider audience than just the congregations involved. They passed the letters around to different congregations, and this is understood in the New Testament, so that they're written for a general audience, not only, maybe first and specifically for that church, but broader than that. Uh, Number four, in, isn't it second Peter? Where Paul talks, Peter talks about the writings of Paul, and he puts them in the category of scriptures. He says that people like to twist Paul's writings as they do the other scriptures. And if they're doing it with the other scriptures, they're doing it, of course, with, um, with the writings of Paul himself. And then there's one more thing I'd like to show you. Let me just take a minute here. I want to show you this from um, Timothy. Okay, Second uh, Timothy chapter 16. Many of us are familiar with this. Let me kind of move this over to our screen and we can take a look at this together. Okay, Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. I want you to notice this phrasing here. Well, first, let's go back a little bit. Um, verse 14 Uh, But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures. Okay, just stop right there. Paul's reference to the holy scriptures right there in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. So, Adonis, I, I just want you to consider for a minute. What were the Holy Scriptures that Paul referred to there? Well, obviously, it's the Old Testament. When when he speaks there, again, take a look at that. 
um, when he says, and from childhood, if you've known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through the faith, which is in Christ Jesus, obviously Paul's speaking there of the Hebrew scriptures, what we might call today a little bit imprecisely, the Old Testament. Uh, Hebrew scriptures is probably a better name, but we'll go with Old Testament. Now, I want you to notice this carefully, the phrasing of the next verse. Verse 16, Paul says this, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now, I want you to notice that phrasing, all scripture. Paul did not say those scriptures are given by inspiration of God. And he doesn't use the exact same terminology before. He's saying holy scripture is given by inspiration of God. He makes it broader because Paul and the other apostles were aware that God was moving in and through them to produce the writings that would be the authoritative revelation of God for uh, the church, for the New Testament, for for God's uh, perfected work in Jesus Christ. So that transition from the Holy Scriptures to Paul broadening it by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit there in verse 16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That, that is another indication that we can know that the writings of Paul, the writings of the New Testament, I would include everything from Matthew to Revelation, are to be considered Scripture. And then finally, I think I gave you five points already. I'll give you one more point. The, the very valid measure of canonization. Look, the early church just understood this. Christians got together and said, well, okay, if we've got writings that uh, have been reliably given to us by an apostle, that's very important, someone who was an apostle or had a definite apostolic connection, that's good. Um, then, secondly, uh, does it have inherent consistency and just does it have the evident description, the evident evidence of being uh, the scripture of God? The, the early church agreed upon the scriptures. The early church did not create the Bible. God created the Bible. But the early church recognized the scriptures there. So uh, I hope that's clear enough there for you, uh, Adonis. Okay, next question comes now from Ethan, who asks, is Paul's teaching, is Paul teaching purgatory in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15, when he says that we shall be saved through fire? Um, no, he is not teaching that. Let me uh, go over there. Let's go to uh, that passage you spoke of, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Verse 15, um, let's take a look at this. I, I, I really uh, appreciate this passage from the Apostle Paul. He says this, um, verse 11, for no other foundation can anyone lay that which is laid, which is in Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, 
but he himself will be saved yet so as through fire. Okay, I I just want to recognize here the, the huge difference what we see here in, let me cut back to myself, the huge difference between what we see here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and the Roman Catholic idea of purgatory is simply this, is that in 1 Corinthians 3, it's the work that's being judged. In purgatory, it's the worker, it's the person. And so there's no question about the heavenly destiny or going that, there's no inclination of of a time period when these things are burnt off. Folks, the the Roman Catholic idea of purgatory uh, comes, in my opinion, in my perspective, look, anything you're talking about theology, you'll get different perspectives, different ideas about, but I'll, I'll give you my perspective on this. The Roman Catholic understanding of purgatory comes from the fact that they based the assurance of salvation upon the receiving of the sacraments. In kind of classical or medieval Roman Catholic theology, um, you are saved because you receive grace from God, but God dispenses his grace to you through the church. And uh, just like there's a teller at the bank that you do transactions with, the priest is sort of the, the... teller at the bank of grace and the the priest dispenses God's grace with the sacraments you know the seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church uh, baptism holy communion confirmation last rites ordination holy matrimony uh, whatever the other one is um, I'm not even gonna get into that right now okay so the 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 salvation of a person in the Roman Catholic system is assured if they receive the sacraments. Now, here's kind of the problem. They would look around and they would see there are people in our midst who live like the devil. Confession was the one sacrament I forgot. They would look around and see people that lived like the devil, yet checked all their sacramental boxes. What do you do with that? Say, well, God has to deal with that somehow. And the somehow he would deal with it is he would burn away those impurities by making those unfaithful believers, so to speak, suffer in purgatory where they are purged from their sins, where they're cleaned up before they go to heaven. That's fundamental denial, I believe, of the finished work of Jesus Christ. We are made clean by what Jesus Christ has done for us. Folks, when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, to die, paid in full, it was finished. There's nothing more for us to atone for in our own sins either way. So anyway, I hope that answers it. Ethan, there's a big difference here. What's spoken of there in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is sometimes called the judgment seat of Christ where it's a judgment for reward, not for entrance into heaven. Not the same as purgatory at all. All right, before I go on to my next question, I am supposing that my mother-in-law and father-in-law, Gunnar and Nils Bergström of Jörlanda, Sweden, are viewing in, and maybe my daughter, Ansafi, is visiting with them, are viewing right now. If you are, hello, 
Greetings. Hey, how are you guys doing? I hope you're doing well. An Sophie, I'm going to send you a picture of something I want you to pick up for me uh, before you come home. So just keep your eyes open for that. And I hope you guys are having a great time. So God bless you to uh, Gunnel and Nils and An Sophie in Sweden and everybody else. Okay, let me go on to the next question here from Ethan, who says, um, no, we already got the one from Ethan. Uh, Lynn asks, is Calvinism considered a false doctrine if I am not Calvinist? Well, Lynn, um, look, I, I think that the system of Calvinism, or if you want to talk about Reformed theology, you know, re Reformed theology and Calvinism, of course, overlap greatly, but they're not identically the same thing. Um, I, I think that there's some things that aren't correct in that system of theology. Fr friends, I just want you to understand, I, I don't blow the trumpet uh, or march in the parade of any system of theology. I, I am what some people would say derisively, they would say this with criticism, David, you're a biblicist. You, you really just rely on the Bible and you think that all we need is a biblical theology and not a systematic theology. Now, friends, I, I'm not saying that there's no value in a systematic theology. God forbid, there, there is, and it, it's good, it's helpful, but I, I believe that I understand and appreciate the limitations of systematic theology in a way that those who are the champions of systematic theology sometimes don't understand. So I, I don't subscribe to any full system of theology. Um, so when I say that I think that there's some things wrong in Calvinistic theology, I'm speaking about it as a system. And I would say the same thing for strict Arminian theology and on and on and on. So is it false doctrine? Well, it, I think there's some things that Calvinism gets wrong. Now, your, your question is, is Calvinism considered false doctrine if I'm not a Calvinist? Well, there are Calvinists or people who hold a Reformed theology who will say that, yes, you are in terrible error, grievous error, for not believing the five points of TULIP, um, those five points of Reformed theology, uh, Actually, all that was developed as a response to five points of uh, Arminian theology, the remonstrance, but that, that's all another uh, issue. But the, the simple point is, well, there are people who will say that of you, Lynn, but here's what you need to do. You need to stick close to your Bible. That, that's really what matters. And, and are there some things that are mysteries? Are there some things that people have divergent? Of course there are. But if you stay close to your Bible, you'll work your way through those things. Um, I'm a great appreciator of Charles Spurgeon. That's who's on my shoulder right back here. Things are turned around when I look at the screen. Uh, there's a little bobblehead of Charles Spurgeon. I'm, I'm a great admirer of Spurgeon. I've, I've read a lot of Spurgeon sermons through the years. It's kind of my habit on whatever passage I'm teaching from. I want to know what Spurgeon preached on that. And so... Um, I feel like I've received a lot and benefited a lot from the writings, the preaching of Charles Spurgeon. 
And th- there are some places where younger in his ministry, especially Spurgeon was adamant. He, he, there are quotes of him saying things like, uh, the gospel is Calvinism and Calvinism is the gospel, you know, that, and just being very that, but even though he was definitely a Calvinist, Charles Spurgeon, by the same token, I believe he was what I would call a sensible Calvinist in this sense very strongly holding to what he believes. But there's also many wonderful, beautiful quotes from Charles Spurgeon. I, I, I know because in the sermons I read of his, I keep my eyes open for quotes like this and I sort of compile them into a document. There, I, there are quotes from Spurgeon's sermons that say things like this, and I'm paraphrasing here because I don't have them in front of me. I'm doing it from memory. Uh, say things like this. Um, some let, let me rephrase, let me get it straight in my head, the, the Spurgeon quote I want to give to you. He says, um, he says, am I a Calvinist or an Arminian? He says, it depends on what question you ask me. If you ask me why a man is saved, I'll give you the Calvinistic answer. It's only due to God alone. If you ask me why a man is damned, I'll give you the Arminian answer. It's only man's responsibility. He says, um, it doesn't really matter what you call me, just as long as I stay close to my Bible. And listen, I I think that's the attitude I want to have. And even though I may not come to every same conclusion that Charles Spurgeon came to, I I still would admire him uh, as someone who's contributed a lot to me and to many others, of course. So, Lynn, I, I hope that helps you there. Next question comes from Tony. Why do you think God had man write scripture and not some other method also? Why didn't Jesus write any scripture? Uh, Tony, I think that's great. Um, Question, I think God gave humanity the scriptures through human agency Because largely, not exclusively, but largely, that's how God likes to work. God likes to work in partnership with man. The Bible says we are co-laborers with Christ, fellow laborers with him. Jesus calls us as servants into his work. And it's just a general, again, I want to emphasize there are certainly things that God does without any participation of man whatsoever. But in many ways, in many instances, God delights to do his work with the cooperation of men and women who will serve him, who will be instruments in his hands. And so uh, part of why God wanted to do that was bringing forth the scriptures through the personality of human instruments. And this is one of the glorious things about the Bible. Listen, I believe exactly what we read previously here, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all inspiration is given by, excuse me, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's God-breathed. It's a wonderful, powerful thing. It, It is the word of God, yet God did not erase the human personality of his instruments. I can read Paul and say, that's Paul. I can tell Paul anywhere. I can read Isaiah and say, that's Isaiah. I knew that was Isaiah. I can read, you know, uh, Revelation. That's Revelation. That's John writing. 
James, God did not erase the human personality of the instruments that he used. Because again, that's God's common way of working, not his exclusive way, but his common way of working. And so God used human beings instead of, for example, delivering his word just by angels from heaven. It's interesting. According to Jewish tradition, later on confirmed by the New Testament, the law came to Moses by angelic visitation, but even Moses had to write it down. And we see the stamp of Moses in it. So God wanted the personality of his people to be expressed in and through his word. Now, as for why Jesus didn't write any scripture, I, I can give you one suggested reason for that. Here's my suggested reason as for why Jesus didn't write any scripture, because we would think that that is more important than any other uh, portion of the Bible. And friends, that's just not true. Um, I, I don't have it right here in front of me. The Bible I have right here in my hand, it's not a red letter version. Um, I got a few Bibles around here. Maybe this one's a red letter version. No, not this one either. So, you, you know what a red letter edition is of the Bible, don't you? A red letter edition is where the words of Jesus Christ are in red in the Bible. Now, look, it's harmless enough. I'm not saying throw away your red letter edition Bible, no. But it is a huge mistake to think that the red letters are more inspired by God than anything else in the Bible. Friends, Genesis is just as inspired as Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, or the book of Revelation. Everything from Genesis to Revelation is equally inspired by God. And that's an important principle for us to understand. Now, if it were true that Jesus actually wrote a book for us, actually, he dictated the books of uh, Revelation, the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation. But if Jesus were to write out, you know, there would be a book of Jesus, so to speak, uh, we would almost irresistibly think that was higher and more important than anything else. And God wants to see all his word as being equal in authority. Uh, so I hope that helps you there, Tony. Next question comes from Raylon, who asks, how did the people of the Old Covenant receive their salvation? Well, Raylon, it worked like this. Okay, we, as part of the New Covenant, we understand the atonement that Jesus worked on behalf of his people by looking back to what Jesus the Messiah did on the cross. Under the New Covenant, excuse me, under the Old Covenant, they looked forward to what the Messiah would do in the perfect sacrifice, fulfilling all sacrifices. H how much detailed awareness they had of that, look, that would differ from person to person. But this is what we do know. We do know that. No one has ever been saved by keeping the law, by keeping God's commandments. <laughs> Because if you fail in one commandment, you've failed in them all. And everybody has failed to keep God's commandments. 
some fail a lot worse than others, but everybody fails. So nobody is good enough to save themselves through their law keeping. It's a huge mistake to think that in the old covenant, people were saved by works and in the new covenant, people are saved by faith. No, no, no. They were saved by faith. Now, when God gave the law to Israel, he gave it to them, uh, not only with the law, but also with sacrifice, a sacrificial system, the priesthood, the sacrifices, all of those things together, because God wanted them to understand that there was a remedy for their sin. And every Old Testament sacrifice looked forward to the perfect sacrifice that the Messiah would offer. To, to say it shortly, um, Raylan, it says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. He was saved by faith. So was everybody who was saved under the old covenant. It was done by their individual personal faith in the living God. Expressed, of course, through their honor, obedience, law, expressed through the sacrificial system, which would look forward to the perfect sacrifice that Jesus would make. So I hope that explains it to you well enough there. Next question comes from uh, Pitasoni. Um, it says, as my wife asked me last night, why didn't God the Father send Jesus straight after Adam's sin? Pitasoni, all I can tell you is this, is that in the book of Colossians, ooh, or is it 1 Timothy? Well, I can't remember which place it is in the New Testament. Maybe it is 1 Timothy. But Paul says that in due time, God sent his son. In the proper time, in due time, at just the right time. And there were probably many reasons in the plan of God. Um, but God wanted a long preparatory work up to the cross. And then a long period after the cross for the message of the gospel to go out. I guess what, I, what I'm trying to say is that God knew just in the wisdom of his time when it would be. Now, I, I do want to remind you something like this, is that proportionately... Far more of humanity has lived after the time of Jesus than before. So, in the course of population as it's moved through history, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, fairly early in the entire population development of the earth. The population gains in the earth in the last 2,000 years have far outstripped anything that there was before that. So, God said, no, I'm going to send Jesus before most of humanity ever walks the earth. But he established that there would be a long preparatory time, mostly so that he could work in and through his people Israel to prepare Israel and to prepare the world for the coming of the Messiah. But when he sent Jesus, it was at just the right time in due time. Thank you for that, Pitasoni. Next question comes from Brandy. Uh, what's your opinion on the show, The Chosen? 
Okay, Brandy, I'm going to give you a fairly ignorant opinion because I've only watched a few episodes. And my general take on any kind of media having to do with the Bible or Jesus or anything else is I always go into it expecting it to be horrible. And I mean terrible. I don't expect any director, filmmaker, whatever it would be, whatever artistic, any painting, I don't expect it to get anything right in the Bible. With my expectations set so low, if they get anything right, I'm pretty happy about it. So that's the general perspective I go into things with. But number two, I want to emphasize that the only thing that would bother me, well, not the only thing, the main thing that would bother me about The Chosen is if people embraced it as a substitute for the Bible. Now, friends, that's bad. If people would have the attitude of, oh, man, I love The Chosen, yeah, but what the Bible says is pretty boring. I think that's bad. And if it contributes to that attitude in a person, then it's not good for them. There's a lot of speculation, tons of it, in The Chosen. And, you know, a lot of it's made just to make an interesting story, interesting plot line. I understand why they do it, drawing the reader into the story, uh, trying, I think, very hard to never contradict the scriptures. But, you know... Do we know, and again, I'm just thinking from the couple episodes I saw, do we know that Peter, is there any hint at all in the scriptures that Peter was getting in trouble for fishing on the Sabbath on the Sea of Galilee? Um, Is there any, because he had to pay off a debt to Matthew, the tax collector. Is there any hint of that at all? No, whatsoever, It's, it's fully fabricated. I almost wish that they would put the chosen out with, uh, like, uh, uh, in the corner, a red light that would flash when it's dealing with extra-biblical speculation, and then a green light when it was dealing with things that were actually in the Bible. So everybody would be able to say, oh, this, ah, interesting story, somebody's thoughts may or may not be true. Oh, but this, these are the words and the scenes of the Bible. So my main concern is that it is a substitute for the scriptures. A few years back, there was a woman who wrote a book called uh, Jesus Calling. Very popular book. I'm sure the publishers loved it. It sold millions of copies and, you know, all the spinoffs and this and that. I believe her name was Sarah Young. Uh, I'm not, I think that's her name. Friends, that book purported to be the words of Jesus. And they weren't. Those were made-up words from that woman's head. Maybe they were good words, maybe they were bad words, but they were made up. They were not the words of Jesus. And this is the problem. I actually spoke with people, and I'm sure this is a common thing, who they would much rather read Jesus' calling than they would read their Bible. And friends, that's not good. That's not right. Look, I'm not into book banning in this sense. Um, If somebody wants to read Jesus Calling, go ahead and read it, but read it 
telling yourself every page, these are not the words of Jesus. This is what a woman imagines the words of Jesus to be. If you keep that in mind, fine. Kind of the same principle with the chosen. Look, I will say this. I think it is encouraging that there are many people who become interested and engaged with Jesus because of that series, The Chosen. Uh, my prayer is just that they would remain interested and engaged with the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus who actually exists. Because that that's, look, we're, we're not emphasizing the Jesus of the Bible because we're Bible salesmen or we idolize the Bible. Here's just the truth. It's only the Jesus of the Bible that actually exists. If somebody creates a Jesus outside the Bible, that's an imaginary Jesus. And that Jesus can't save anyone. All right, went a long time for that. Here's another one from Andromeda. Andromeda asks this. Some verses seem to say that God hates the sinners and others say that he wants them to be saved and that he loves them. Could you please explain this topic? Does he hate them or love them? Okay, well, does God hate or love sinners? Uh, Andromeda, the answer to that is yes. Because there's passages that speak to it from both perspectives. You're absolutely right. There's passages that speak of God's hatred, his opposition, his judgment of sinners. No doubt about it. And then there's other ones that speak of God's love for sinners. The passages that speak about God's love for sinners mainly center around uh, his provision for them in Jesus Christ, what God has provided for them. And that was God's expression of love to a sinful world. I'll provide for you. You will not go to hell because no way was provided for you. If you go to hell, it will be because, because you rejected what God uh, provided for you in Jesus Christ. You know, the, the ancient rabbis used to have a problem with this. They used to think, some of them, that God had two thrones in heaven. One was a throne of mercy and grace. They would probably say chesed. And the other, a throne of judgment. And they kind of pictured two different thrones because they couldn't get their head around this exact issue that you're talking about. How can God be a holy God of judgment and at the same time be a loving God who saves? So they kind of thought that God must operate from two different thrones. When, he, when he's going to judge, he sits on this throne. That's his throne of hatred to sinners. Uh, but when he's going to rescue and save, he sits on his throne of grace, of mercy. But friends, this is what we see. We see those two thrones are reconciled into one throne of Jesus Christ. Hebrews calls it the throne of grace that we are invited to approach. In Jesus Christ, well, or let me put it to you this way. On the cross, Jesus was treated as if he were a sinner hated by God. Now, I want to stress that he was not but he was treated as if he was that way. He received the treatment that we deserved. So that's the best way I would answer that Andromeda. Uh, both of these principles are true in God, 
both his holy judgment and hatred of sin and his love for sinners and um, his, uh, his offer of salvation and rescue in Jesus Christ. Okay, let me get to the next question from Chris, who asks, Heaven, a new heaven and a new earth, the throne room, where the kings laid their crowns at God's feet, are these the same place? Okay, Chris, um, I would say mostly. This is what, to be honest, I'm not entirely clear on in my own mind how the new heavens and the new earth fit into that. The new heavens and the new earth may be just another way of speaking of the heavenly realm. That's definitely a possibility. But it may also be that when God is finished with this plan of the ages, this redemptive thing that he's doing in all of history, when God is finished with that, God may make a new creation. He may create new beings, um, and we may have a different role in that next creation, and maybe a new heavens and a new earth, um, a new heavens and a new earth will, um, will be a part of that new creation. So, I, I think that's a distinct possibility, and that, that may be just it. All right, I'm looking at the clock. Uh, I'm going to take one more question from Texas, and then uh, that'll be it for today. Uh, Texas asks this question, repentance is part of salvation. I've heard it described as the fruit. What about sins not repented for and a person dies? Are they still saved? Texas, uh, let me just say yes. Okay, let me kind of clarify. Repentance is a very important part of God's work in his people. We repent and believe. And I don't think of repentance and faith as being two different things. Repentance and faith are two aspects of the same thing. Repentance is turning from my sin, and faith is turning towards God. And I can't turn towards God unless I first turn from my sin. So, repentance and faith are, are linked together. And if a person truly comes to God in faith, they will repent. The way I illustrate it sometimes is saying that um, if you're in New York and you need to come to Los Angeles, I don't have to tell you, okay, now leave New York and now come to Los Angeles. If I just tell you, come to LA, that's enough. Because you can't come to LA unless you leave New York. Well, in the same way, we can't truly trust in, rely on, and cling to Jesus Christ. We can't have true faith in him without actually uh, forsaking the trust that we put in ourselves, the confidence we have in our own sin, our own things. So, it's all part of that plan. Now, I do want to emphasize this, is that we aren't saved by our repentance, and we don't earn salvation by our repentance. R repentance is part of our essential response to God. But Texas, if we had to repent of each and every sin that we commit before we could be allowed entrance into heaven, then we would all go to hell. Texas, I just want you to consider 
how many times and how many ways we sin before God in a day without even knowing it. And there could be many individual acts of sin that I'm not even aware of. So there's a general repentance that is essential at the beginning of the Christian life. Then there is a, um, I would say, specific repentance of things that the Holy Spirit makes us aware of that we need to um, uh, forsake and, and put behind us, mainly because it would hinder our fellowship with God. So those things kind of combined collectively make up this idea of repentance. Hope that helps you, Texas. And uh, thank you, everybody, for joining us today. God willing, and if we live, I'll be with you next week to come back and uh, answer more questions on another Thursday time. So, so pleased that you could join us today. God bless you. And again, thank you for joining us today. Thanks to Andrea, our moderator today. God bless you, Devin. I hope you're enjoying some time off. And uh, thank you to everybody on the Enduring Word team who helps to make this happen week after week. God bless you. And I hope to see you next week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.